Welcome to the Whole and Holy Podcast. I'm Dr. Peter Vogt. I'm the Dean of Bethel Seminary, and I'm your host for this episode of the Whole and Holy Podcast. My guest today is David French. David is a columnist and senior editor of The Dispatch, who also writes for Time Magazine and was formerly a staff writer for National Review. He graduated from Harvard Law School and is an attorney who's worked extensively on religious liberty issues. He served as an army officer in the Iraq War, and he and his wife, Nancy, live in Tennessee with their three children. David, thanks so much for being a part of the, the podcast and, and welcome to Whole and Holy. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. David, I read your essay on Sunday on, you know, we have a long way to go in terms of, of racism in the United States. And it was so powerful in your discussion of racism in the U.S. And you talked about how far we've come, but also how far we have to go. Can you please share with our listeners a little bit about how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, uh, the essay was kind of uh, kind of autobiographical, um, and it, it related sort of the way uh, the way I have experienced the the issues and and the discussion of racism in the United States in my life and how that changed, and why in many ways I don't think I'm uh, ex- except for one one factor that I'll get to. Uh, I, I feel like I have an insight into some of the resistance, especially uh, white, educated uh, evangelicals have to some of the discourse around race in this country. And, mm-hmm. and so I grew up in a small town in the South. I, I saw racism in my high school for sure, uh, absolutely saw it. But then once I went to college and uh, then to law school and sort of joined this like uh, you know, this educated professional class of Americans, racism really starts to, if you're, if you're a white person, racism really starts to disappear hmm. from your life or, or co- experiences of racism start to disappear from your life. And what comes in instead is the experience of anti-racism. And mm-hmm. so what I mean by that is you start to go and work for an employer that might have diversity training and might be an equal opportunity uh, employer or an affirmative action employer, you're exposed to, um, you, if you have college age kids, your kids are in college or they're being taught concepts like, you know, white privilege or critical race theory. And so your experience of life is one, uh, especially if you're in the sort of educated class of Americans, your experience of life is experiencing the efforts, mainly the efforts to try to defeat racism. And so when you hear rhetoric that says something like, well, America has a problem with systemic racism Mm -hmm. uh, or America has a problem with institutional racism. You often experience that and it seems a little bit strange to you because you're thinking, wait, all of the systems I'm around are trying to defeat racism. All Mm -hmm. of the systems that I experience are trying to defeat racism. And, And that's where I was coming from and sort of set the stage at the start of the essay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you talked also about, you know, just the experience of your, your adopted daughter yes. and, and how that kind of opened your eyes. Could you say a little more about that? Yeah. So then, so that's the, you know, that's the world I'm coming from after growing up, as I said, in, in small town, Kentucky. And I live in this world where you feel like all of the systems around you are actually trying to defeat racism. So when you hear these words like systemic racism or institutional racism, it, it, it sort of rings a little bit hollow. And then uh, in 2010, we adopted um, our youngest uh, child, a a little girl from Ethiopia, beautiful little girl from Ethiopia. 
and we came home and things changed. Hmm. Like the experience that we had with our two older children who are both blonde hair, blue eyed, um, and the experience we had with our youngest, who's uh, African-American, was very different. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to say all the time, but quite frequently, we began to have these weird incidents. Some of them, um, the best explanation for them was something related to race, although that you know may not have been the only explanation. And then some of them were explicitly racial. So, uh, for example, you would have these weird incidents where Naomi would be in a neighborhood pool uh, she's the only black kid in a pool. Uh, all the other kids are white. But to get into the pool, you had to, um, or to be, to get into the pool, you had to show identification, what family you're with, and you're given a little armband. And the armbands are clearly visible, that, or the wristbands are clearly visible, that you've got the right color, you're in there, you're in. A uh, person comes up and demands to know who she's with mm-hmm. alone of all of the kids, you know, and you're like, that's a little strange. Um, yeah or you'll be uh, shopping in a department store. And um, a police officer approached her, and this happened over this, literally happened this last holiday um, season. A police officer walked up to her and and very aggressively demanded to know who she was with and what she was intending to buy. Hmm. Well, I, you know, my oldest daughter uh, has shopped with my wife countless times, and that's never, ever happened. And Hmm. then some things were explicitly racial, like, on school field trips where a, a, um, a student would, if one of her fellow students would say, well, I can't have a play date at your house because my dad says that it's dangerous for black people to live. Hmm. Um, and those are the personal things. And that's not the whole list by any means. It's just a few examples of these kind of periodic troubling events that would occur that were totally different than applied to my, my older two kids. And then there was, um, in 2015 and 2016, I was writing for National Review at the time, and I began to oppose Donald Trump as a conservative, and I was speaking out against the alt-right, which is this white nationalist movement that's mainly online, but is has uh, also done some terrible things in the real world. And the racist backlash against my family was unbelievable. Hmm. Um, Pictures of my daughter, who was seven years old at the time, were photoshopped into gas chambers with Donald Trump in an SS uniform about to press the button um, to kill her. Uh, Pictures of her were photoshopped into slave pictures. She was uh, called racial slurs. Uh, These same alt-right people found my wife's wife's blog on a website called Patios and filled the comment sections with images of dead and dying African-Americans. It's horrible. I mean, it was horrible. And that was hardly the full list of all the things the alt-right did to us because of race. And then the alt-right is doing this. And and here you have the campaign chair for for Donald Trump, um, Steve Bannon, who was saying that he wanted Breitbart, the second most trafficked website at the time in conservative world, to become, quote, the platform for the alt-right. And you're beginning to see that, wait a minute, this, this thing of racism that had not been part of my experience of my life since I had left high school was coming back with a vengeance. Mm. And it was also coming back at a time when I was beginning to write critically of some of the ways in which the conservative movement was reflexively dismissive, just reflexively dismissive of any claims of racism that you're seeing in some of uh, public controversies or and oftentimes reflective, reflexively dismissive of public controversies involving the, the deaths of 
uh, African American men, and I and I really saw that when I got a huge backlash uh, when I wrote in 2012 in commentary to say, wait a minute, um, we shouldn't rush to convict George Zimmerman, the man who shot Trayvon Martin. He needs to have a trial. But this idea that people were valorizing or lionizing George Zimmerman and and reflexively defending the police who initially had very quickly declined to file or press any charges against him, that that was troubling in its own right, and that George Zimmerman did a number of terrible things during that evening, even if he didn't commit murder against Trayvon Martin. And and the backlash against that writing was some of the most intense backlash I experienced until I was uh, opposing Trump in 2015, 2016, when the backlash to that exceeded anything that I'd ever received before and got very, very explicitly racialized against my family. Well, it sounds like, you know, from what you're describing, you have you know, the advantage of kind of seeing things in, in two different ways uh, as a result of that experience. I think it's very easy for many uh, white Americans to look at things and say, you know, why don't I see this systemic racism if it's so pervasive? Um, whereas you know, people of color might say, how can you not see it? And I, you, you talk about that a bit in the, in the essay as well. Um, what what do you have uh, in terms of how we got there in terms of the just the different those two very very different perspectives both of which seem yeah. self-evident to the people who hold them yeah so i in the essay i do a, a thought experiment and i just say okay let's imagine you're a, a white american and let's be optimistic and say that 90% of white americans are not racist and 10% of white americans are racist um, and let's also say that it's, as is true, especially in, you know, more educated, um, a lot of the more educated uh, uh, upscale quarters of American life, that expressions of racism are extremely socially disfavored. So a great way to lose your friend group or to be scorned at work or to maybe lose your job is to express racist sentiments. So nine out of 10 are not racist. One out of 10 are racist. and. Uh, So if you're in that social circle, the chances are you're just not going to hear racist expressions at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Your social circle condemns it. Most of the people around you are not racist, so they're not going to say anything anyway. The one out of 10 who are racist are probably going to keep to themselves. They're not going to say what they think. And so in your life experience, you're going to say, what are you talking about, about this racism that's supposedly pervasive? I never see it. I never hear it. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, the only thing that you really see and experience are you know, the diversity trainings and the efforts to combat discrimination. And so it just doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. But then if you're an African-American, and remember what I just said, that one out of every 10, again, uh, that's, not, that's not a scientific number. It's just a, you know, guesstimate. It's a, for this p- purpose of the experiment, that one out of every number of you know, one out of every, say, 10 or 20 or eight or whatever the number is, but a persistent number of white people in your life are going to be racist. So what that means is that you will persistently experience it, racism, and you'll not know when, and you'll often not know how, and you'll not know from whom, but it's going to happen. It can happen in a department store just as I described where a police officer aggressively confronts you when you're doing nothing but shopping, or it can happen when you've been pulled over by the police and perhaps the police officer is well, way more hostile than the actual facts of the encounter should indicate or 
you know, you can just go through con uh, multiple different kinds of scenarios. And so what ends up happening is that that racist experience becomes just part of your life. And so that's where you end up with two groups of people, the, the, a white community uh, that is, uh, that condemns racism and most of the people around them are not racist and racism is socially disfavored saying, I don't see all this stuff. And a black community that is constantly exposed to those white people who are racist mm -hmm. saying, how can you not see it? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the values of uh, the recent conversation that we've been having combined with the consistent, awful, terrible drumbeat of some of these videos mm -hmm. that have made very real a lot of the allegations that used to just, you know, you would hear one version and then you'd hear a police version and the two didn't match and, and you didn't know what to believe, but the videos have really cut through a lot of this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think all of a sudden what you're beginning to ha have a moment right now where a lot of white American Christians are going, are hearing the testimony of fellow Americans and going, oh, and then combining that with the videos going, oh, no. Mm -hmm. And the polling, interestingly, is just crazy right now as far as like the rapid change of attitude that is taking place in the United States. It's a... Um, a extraordinary change of attitude that's taking place. And I, and I have noticed this isn't scientific, but I've just noticed in my own, uh, you know, in my own work, which involves following a ton of Christian voices out there, mm -hmm. that the evangelical church seems to be having a moment of real grief mm -hmm. and, and sadness and an urgent imperative towards reconciliation right now that I've not really seen before. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, when you look at the video of George Floyd and how horrendous it is, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to do anything but grieve in that situation because, you know, it's unlike other situations where it's a split second thing. It's, you know, eight minutes and 46 seconds or whatever it was. And, and that's just, you know, and it's right there in front of you. Um, and I, I think that's right, that that creates that sense of urgency and, and, in a way, the undeniability of it, because it was easily preventable. Uh, any minute could have stopped it. Uh, well, and it doesn't take place in a vacuum. So this is happening in, in, you know, that video, the George Floyd video is one of the worst and most awful things I've ever seen. And it comes right on the heels of the horrible Ahmaud Arbery shooting awful. in Georgia. Yes. Which was also recorded on video and was also horrific and unspeakably unspeakably evil to watch and and then it comes on the heels of we learned that that you know that shooting had taken place in february and the, the individuals weren't charged even after law enforcement had watched that video right and and so you know you're you're already there's this sort of raw open wound as a result of the ahmad arbery video which of course was coming on the heels of other incidents from previous years um, people really didn't react to that because it came out in the height of the lockdowns. Yep. Then comes George Floyd as the lockdowns are tailing off. And it was like there was just this pent up energy that erupted around the, the United States. And regrettably, some of it was violent, but the vast overwhelming majority of it was this really um, emotional, peaceful demonstration against racism that you know has been profoundly powerful 
and has been experienced in many American communities as profoundly powerful. And, and the polling data again shows that overwhelming numbers of people are supporting the protests. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, is, this is a change. This, this is definitely a change. Well, and that's, that's a good segue, because um, I'd like to talk a little bit, too, about one aspect that you wrote about is that you noted we don't have to agree with everything someone else believes in order to work with them on addressing injustice. So you know, for example, that right. someone can be wrong on abortion, but right on police brutality. So in light of that, what, what suggestions do you have for, for trying to move forward constructively? Well, one is don't define everybody by the extreme. Mm -hmm. So we have this really distressing habit of saying, you know, just when I thought we could reach common ground, I heard this call of defund the police and now I'm against them, you know, or just when I thought I could find some common ground with the people chanting Black Lives Matter, I went to the Black Lives Matter website and I found what they really believe and now I'm against them. And so we have this habit of because our country is in this in this pattern of negative polarization where it it's always pulling us apart the culture mm -hmm. instead of saying you know look i'm uh, instead of saying hey i'm gonna do this comprehensive search and i'm gonna find the people who agree with me on everything i'm not talking and let's even leave aside the other aspects of their politics like mm -hmm. you know as i talked about with healthcare and abortion or whatever but i'm gonna find the people who agree with me on everything on race and mm -hmm. work with them no no, why don't you find specific areas of common ground where you can work with somebody? So you don't have to agree with all of the elements of intersectionality or critical race theory or implicit bias theory to work with somebody on ending qualified immunity for police officers or work with somebody on ending this practice called policing for profit where revenue collection overtakes public safety as a police priority or ending no-knock raids or banning a chokehold, that you can, you can go into and enter into alliances with people without total agreement with them. And this sounds like, well, of course, <laughs> common sense, but no, it's not common sense anymore. It's not, of course, anymore. It's in fact countercultural right. to where we are now, to work with people that you disagree with on many other things. And so I think, but this is the time to do that. This is the time to say, look, Look, you know, friend and neighbor, we're, we're going to agree to disagree on multiple issues in the political spectrum. We may agree to disagree on who we're going to vote for. We're going to agree to disagree even on some aspects of the race conversation itself. But you know what? We need to do something about police brutality in this neighborhood. And here are some things we do agree on. And let's let's get to work. Mm -hmm. And I think that would go a long way towards beginning to heal some wounds in our society, we shouldn't be placing such preconditions mm -hmm. on of, of agreement with us before we reach across uh, to work with somebody else. Mm -hmm. David, many of our listeners uh, to this podcast, they're pastors and, and ministry leaders. And I know that, you know, you're a, what I gather of you, you're a thoughtful and committed layperson. So I'm not trying to put you on the spot as a, a ministry <laughs> professional, but do you have any suggestions as you, as a thoughtful and committed layperson, what you're hoping churches will do or, or advice as a thoughtful and committed layperson for people who are leading churches and, and trying to address these things? Well, you know, I think one of the things that's really important is, um, you know, to make, to make the very point that I just made, that we, we 
don't have to be in total agreement uh, before we work with other people. Mm-hmm. But there's more than that. It's more than that. You know, evangelicals, I'm, I'm a member of a PCA church in, uh, right outside of Nashville. Evangelical Christians are very familiar with the power of personal testimony, mm-hmm. with the power of that personal story. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, and I, I'm, I was talking about my personal story on Meet the Press, and Eugene Robinson from the Washington Post made a really great response. He said, you know, it shouldn't take having a multiracial family to understand that there's racism in this country. Mm-hmm. And, and he's right about that. And so, you know, one of the ways that we can understand what is happening is by listening to the power of a person's testimony. Mm-hmm. And, and then there's another thing. There's another thing where, you know, I, I, I found that often when you're talking about race and you use words like systemic racism or institutional racism, what often happens is pe- people feel personally attacked. Mm-hmm. You know, wait a minute, I'm part of the system. Are you saying I'm racist? And so what I try to do is avoid those buzzwords. I talked about at the beginning of my essay how sort of the two sides perceive those, that phrase very differently, mm-hmm. right, uh, you know, right and left. But why don't we just avoid some of those buzzwords and instead let's just kind of talk historical common sense. And, and I kind of walked through it on, in my essay. I said, number one, slavery was legal and moral, morally defended and violently defended from 1619 to 1865. Between 1865 and 1964, legal discrimination against African-Americans was morally defended and sometimes violently defended. The combination from 1619 to 1964, when legalized discrimination on the basis of race was finally eradicated in the Civil Rights Act, that's 345 years of nation-making and culture-making. 345 years. Mm. It's been 56 years since we signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And all that did was gave African-Americans and people of other races the legal tools to fight legal discrimination. It seems weird to say that cultural realities, economic realities, religious reality, you know, religious and spiritual practices, such as our segregated worship services, established over the course of 345 years, will be all undone in 56. Mm, great and point. so one of the things that we can do as, as Christians is to think hard about what are the legacies of the 345 years? What are the things about the 345 years that still matter today? Everything from the wealth disparate differences in wealth accumulation between white and black families, differences in educational opportunities between white and black families to you can go down a line and, and you don't have to use a word like systemic racism or institutional racism to understand that there are 345 years of culture making that have not yet been undone in 56 years mm-hmm. of change. Mm. And to when you, I think when you look at it like that, you're not engaging in any, any buzzwording that makes people feel personally attacked or you're not uh, indulging in some of the, the, the theories of the cultural left that a lot of people have rightful concerns about. Uh, like intersectionality or critical race theory. Instead, you're just saying, doesn't it make sense that 345 years of history really matter in the shaping of the conditions of this country? And yes, we've come a really, really long way. We have, thank God. 
and we should honor the people who helped bring us this far, but we also should recognize that we have a ways to go. And when I say we have a ways to go, that doesn't mean you, Mr. Racist, have a ways to go. It means we collectively as a nation have a ways to go before we ameliorate and address all of the effects of 345 years. And I think that's, I feel like, and you know, your listeners can tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like that's a more uh, straightforward way of presenting a reality that doesn't come across as an attack on people of good faith who are not racist. Mm. Yeah. That's really, that's really helpful. Um, that's, that's great. David, are there any resources besides your essay? We're definitely going to post that in the show notes so that folks can check that out. And I really encourage people to do that. I've shared that with uh, a number of pastor friends that, uh, that I have worked with and, and as a dean of the seminary, I've taught a lot of them. Um, but are there other resources that maybe you'd point our listeners to as they're wrestling with these, with these issues? Anything you'd want wow. to particularly highlight? Wow. You know, um, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I would say this. I would say, um, rather than pointing people to book-length works, um, I would say I make an intentional effort to read arguments about race in the best publications in the United States. You're not going to agree with all of them. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with all of them. But one of the things that I've vowed to do in my own life and just extending beyond race that has been very helpful for, helpful for me is that I have vowed to make an effort to read the best expression of opposing or differing points of view. Mm-hmm. I say a difference between opposing and differing because sometimes I'll read in a differing point of view and it becomes my point of view. <laughs> but I tried to read uh, the best expressions of opposing or differing points of view. And so that means, you know, diving into publications like The Atlantic, which mm-hmm. consistently publish high quality works uh, from African-American thinkers and and people all across the, you know, across the political spectrum who are raising and, and wrestling with issues like this. And you're going to be exposed to stuff you won't agree with and you shouldn't agree with because some, not all of it is great. But I would say the best thing I could do is um, make that effort to expose yourself to the best expression of the other side. And that by itself exposes you to the testimony of other experiences. And, and I think it's good advice, not just in the race issue, but in, you know, politics and culture war in general. That's great. That's a great suggestion. Really appreciate that. Um, our time is almost gone. Uh, I'd like to just ask if, if folks, our listeners want to follow you, uh, whether you're on social media, Twitter, how, how can they follow you and, and uh, learn more about what you're writing and doing? Uh, yeah, well, unfortunately, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> And unfortunately, I tweet. I say unfortunately because I really wish it wasn't a professional imperative to be on Twitter. Um, but yeah, you can follow me at David A. French, uh, but you can also go to thedispatch.com. Uh, I have one newsletter a week, my Sunday newsletter that's free. Uh, but if you become a member, I also write a newsletter Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Um, we have podcasts. I have a podcast called Advisory Opinions with my co-host Sarah Isker that's law and culture focused. Um, so yeah, I'm easy to find the dispatch.com advisory opinions on Apple podcasts or 
um, just follow me at, at David A. French and I will be uh, sending, I just send everything I do out into the Twitter sphere. All right, great. Well, I hope folks will, uh, We'll do that. They'll jump on and, and follow you. Though I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can wish people going into Twitter, but uh, <laughs> for the sake of following you, if you follow, must, yeah. if you must, I'll try to bring a little bit of salt and light into the sludge. Yeah, well, that's much needed in that uh, in that environment. Well, David, thank you for being a part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. I've learned a lot, and and I hope our listeners have as well. I'm sure they have. Thank you for taking the time, and thank you for the work that you're doing. It's really important. My pleasure. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. If you have feedback for us, please email us at whole-and-holy at bethel.edu. We welcome your feedback on episodes and suggestions for future episodes. And if you would go to Stitcher or iTunes, wherever you get your iTunes and rate us, that helps people to be able to find us. Thanks for tuning in. listening to Whole and Holy. This podcast is a production of Bethel Seminary in collaboration with Bethel University's Office of Church Relations. Please share your feedback with us, including ideas you'd like to see in future episodes, by emailing us at wholeandholy at bethel.edu. Once again, that address is wholeandholy at bethel.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.